Sarah? Yes, Josh? Are we ready? I think so. Great. Before we begin, we here at the Puppet Pod would like to acknowledge and honor that this land where we are situated is on a portion of the Aboriginal territory of the Seneca people, and by extension, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. We pay respect to Seneca peoples, past, present, and future, and offer our care and gratitude to the land, water, and air. For more information, please visit the Seneca Art and Culture Center at Ganondagan in Victor, New York. That's G-A-N-O-N-D-A-G-A-N. Or online at www.ganondagan.org. Thank Thank you. Hi, my name is Ashley Winkfield. And I think puppetry is an expression of humanity through things. Puppetry is hard because... (laughs) Just because. There's so many reasons. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Puppet Pod, uh, the podcast in which we try to examine the really interesting and mostly visual world of puppetry through a primarily audio art form, which is the podcast. Does it make a lot of sense? I don't know, but at least we're talking to really, really cool people about the work that they do. Uh, My name is Josh Rice, and I'm so happy to be on this audio adventure with you. And as always, with me is the real captain of the ship, I do say so myself, Sarah Stabley. Sarah, how are you today? I'm... Excellent. How are you, Josh Rice? Uh, I'm hanging in. You know, it's a lovely sunny day out as uh, we continue creating the kind of work that we can in quarantine. So all things considered, I'm, I'm pretty good. Nice. I do hear some lovely birds too. So that's always a good sign. Well, it's so funny because, yes, birds are a lovely thing to have around here. And we've been mentioning animals actually a little more regularly on a puppetry podcast than maybe we should. Uh, Whether it's the snake that has escaped into the theater. Uh, If you want to know more about this snake, listen to some earlier episodes of the podcast and you'll you'll find out all about the snake that has uh, decided to take up residence in the theater that we have not found yet. (gasps) What? I just thought of a new name for him. Okay. Snakespear. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> you seem too excited about that, Sarah. But I do, I kind of like it. I do kind of like it. And then uh, also you were talking about you've taken up some baby possums and some care for some baby possums recently. I have. And I'm really happy to say that we found them a local wildlife rehabilitator who took them in last night is going to make sure that they're all healthy and ready to go and then put them back in the wild so they are well taken care of now and unfortunately out of my hands because they were really cute but it's for the best that's really nice uh way to go local place helping out i I appreciate that and way to go sarah too for like having an eye out on these babies that you're Poor dog made them orphaned. That, that's really yeah, sad. Well, big thanks to my mom, Mama Christine. She's the hero of this story. So, shout out to Sarah's mom, Christine. Hi, Chris. Um, but enough about animals and our awesome moms, um, though we should always be shouting out our moms. Today, we have an 
incredibly cool guest on the podcast, a puppet artist, and a person that I haven't actually uh, met in real life, but we are meeting for the first time on this podcast, which is super exciting, has come highly recommended by some friends of mine, and I have actually seen performing on stage before. I'm happy to welcome Ashley Wingfield to the Puppet Pod. Ashley, how are you? Hi, Josh. I'm, I'm doing well this, this bright and sunny morning. It's also uh, sunny where you are down in North Carolina. Yes, it is. It is. It's been raining for the last few days. So it's nice to like actually have some nice sunbeams coming through the window. Nice. I have spent some time in North Carolina, and I know that humidity is a big part of the weather system down there. Is it really, really uh, dank right now? Really, really bad. And especially because so our AC went out. Both of them went out um, two weeks ago. So we were without any air conditioning for a week. (laughs) So the humidity inside the house was at like 80%. Mm -hmm. Mm It was terrible and miserable and the worst. So we've got it fixed by now because that was unbearable when it was almost 90 degrees no good. <laughs> I uh, I also lived in Arkansas for a while, which is similarly like humid conditions, though it's not near any water. It's a very landlocked place. But I always felt like in the summertime, because it was just so thick when you're walking around outside, it's kind of like... I always equated it to like walking inside of a dog's mouth when they like breathe on you with that hot yes. like... Like thing, that's kind of what I felt like Arkansas air was like in the summertime. I don't know if North Carolina is similar or not. But. Yes, it's just like that. We always say it, you feel like you're in somebody's mouth. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's exactly it. Yes. Um, well, Ashley, we're so happy to have you here today. Um, how have you been doing? Obviously, like we all have been making our uh, adjustments in this world of quarantine. So just curious how you've been keeping yourself occupied as a artist and a maker and, you know, kind of being at home. You had mentioned you've been working on a couple of projects with your mom and just curious what else you've been doing to kind of use your time. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in New York, uh, I think I spent the first month sleeping <laughs> because <laughs> who gets to sleep in New York? Um, oh, and then yes. um, I've really been starting to focus on on doing some music stuff for myself. And so um, I'm a singer as well. And so I've just been doing some covers and really focusing on getting that aspect of my uh, artistic life together. And so I've been doing a few different covers and I've been able to meet up with some friends down here, um, social, social distantly and record some music, which has been nice. And then also just trying to like stay in contact with people, you know, keeping the community strong. And well, especially with the last few weeks of what's been going on with all the the protests and stuff, that's been taking a lot of my attention for these last couple of weeks. And then, um, as you mentioned, doing my mom actually started a podcast with her uh, physician friends at Three Black Docs. And so I've been producing that for them and on that that, uh, learning curve as well. That's awesome. Shout out to Three Black Docs. Where can we find that podcast? Totally. It's um it's everywhere right now. So you can find it on on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And then also we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the number three black docs. That's amazing. And uh That's I'm dope. guessing this is like about uh physicians talking about their work. Is that part and totally. parcel of it? Yeah, for, for the most part. So so it's three um, black female oncologists. Oh. Um, and so, but we talk about everything and thinking about how health really begins in the community. It begins with what you do at home and not just when you step into a doctor's office. And so um, it's the doctors talking about 
there is some health stuff, there is some life stuff. You know, we did an episode on the racial climate right now. And so, you know, we're really just trying to have a holistic way to get information to people that's not, doesn't feel like a lecture. It doesn't feel like, you know, I don't know, school. That sounds so awesome. <laughs> that sounds really, really cool. What a cool project. Yeah. Um, very cool. Yeah, I mean, we are kind of similarly figuring out how to, you know, find ways to be creative or express during this wild time. And yeah, sleeping was a part of, I think, my experience for a while too at the beginning. So yeah, we uh, we launched this podcast to try to fill uh, some programming with our festival that got postponed, obviously. So we're getting to talk to artists in a different way. And it's amazing at this time when we really need something or some ways to process what we're doing and especially these holistic approaches to it like that are a little more all-encompassing and you know I've been thinking a little bit about my place as an artist and like what we can do to help and whether being an artist for me right now is enough and I'm curious for you as you know these larger systems of inequity are really kind of coming to the forefront and we're really being exposed. I'm curious for you, like your place as an artist and then uh, as something maybe bigger than that, like what art can do or if there are like pivots that we should be making. I'm just curious for you, like where you are, mm -hmm. are sitting with some of this. Bigger questions, obviously, but. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's a big question. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. It's <laughs> an entire suitcase um, to unpack. <laughs> I know that's ooh, ooh. Um, so I think at, personally as an as an artist and thinking of ways that I can contribute so two things one I've really been taking a look at the art that I have been doing which is something that I've started to do over the past year anyway and really looking at why am I doing this does it serve me not necessarily just saying yes just to have a job but making sure that it's something that I believe in and something that um aligns with whatever my personal values are. So now in this midst of COVID where I don't really have the choice to be making that kind of work full on, like I said, I've been focusing a little bit more on doing music and the singing because I feel like that's something that I can do at home by myself and put out. So um, I guess last week I released a cover of I'm Here from the Color Purple. That was just like a reminder that like we're beautiful and we're still here. And yes, the world might be full of crap, but you know, we are resilient and we are capable of overcoming that. And despite whatever the world might throw at us that like, you know, we, we can do better. We're capable of doing better and we should. And I guess on a, on a larger scale, there's so many things, I think, especially in the puppet world, you know, I am one of four black puppeteers that I know. And I, the puppet world is relatively small, but it's still definitely like, there's definitely some inequity as far as who gets access to, to the art and who um, is encouraged in the art and how people can even find out and understand it. So I just myself have been really thinking about ways to be able to bring you know, new people of color into the art form and just thinking about ways to, to make it palatable. Like how can we, how can we talk about you know, black issues in this art form. So um, I don't know if you know Jigeto. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know? And so he actually, we worked on a piece a few years ago together called Not Another Lynching, where I just did some consulting with him for, and, you know, it was really about the climate that we were in in 2015, 2016. But because it's a puppet, people can, I feel like it's a little bit more of an easier way for people to digest the information for something as heavy as you know, a lynching uh, trigger warning there, sorry. You know, I, I think that 
puppetry itself has a really great opportunity to make these really big, really difficult concepts into something pal palatable. I mean, even what Sesame Street did, right? Where they're like, you know, Elmo talking to his dad and that's puppetry. And we can talk about how this making us feel and how, you know, the climate is affecting not only ourselves individually, but ourselves as, as a community and, and how ways that we can start to like that, make that better and start fixing some of those issues. Yeah. I, I think in this larger moment of really kind of listening more and, and reflecting uh, Nefri Amini, I don't know if you know Nefri uh, as a, a puppet artist, but uh, mm -hmm. we had her on a, an episode with us and she's a long collaborator of mine and we went to grad school together. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about, talking with her was she emphasized this moment of like reflecting about how much harm you're doing and how much help you're doing and trying to make sure mm -hmm. you're always helping more than you're harming and i realized too as a, a privileged white male who runs a theater company that i've been complicit in some of this stuff you know uh, mm -hmm. uh, unknowingly or even knowingly and trying to figure out ways that we can fight that and, and learn and, and be better and and process that and it's been a lot in sitting in that discomfort you know uh mm -hmm. as well um you know, our, our mutual friend, Margaret Gayford, Maggie, uh, has been really a, a great person to be talking to during during this time. And it also makes me think about, too, how like these larger systems of capitalism even are pushing us in ways that, you know, reinforce, you know, these larger systems of racism and white supremacy and even yes. the processes of how that then affects theater and this like product oriented a process which yep you know is is part and parcel of it right and i you know i'm embarrassed to say yeah oh i'm just realizing these things you know which feels like a stupid thing to say and i am embarrassed by that moment but i'm also excited to be learning more about it and trying to fix it you know in the ways that i can and, and using the platform that i have to be able to do that and you know whether that's like making figuring out a new making process right or how do we make art that that feels a little <laughs> bit more about the artists and not so product driven. And it, it's been a good time for that, I think, and re-examining some of these larger issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's made me feel very hopeful in all of this is seeing how my white community, you know, again, artists tend to be overwhelmingly white just because of privilege and opportunity, yeah. um, which goes into systemic things all the way back to elementary school, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I will say that I've been very impressed with the amount of work that people have been doing, a lot of the introspection, a lot of the ways that people are showing up that they weren't, you know, back in 2015, 2016, um, with, with Mike Brown and Eric Garner, and people are really starting to examine the ways in which they contribute to and are benefited by, you know, the, the systems that are in place. So I'm actually really excited to see kind of what what comes forward of that. I think as artists, we we tend to be a little bit more empathetic just because of the nature of the work. And so it's been very interesting to see how the theater community and the art community has really um, has been actively trying to take steps toward being more inclusive and being more aware and just thinking about art in a different kind of way and thinking about gatekeeping in a different kind of way and, yeah. and you know who has access and why do they have access and how can we start to to increase who has that yeah 100 percent. something that you had mentioned before that i want to 
try to circle back to because I think this is an interesting way that I think puppetry is different than a lot of other art forms is I think it allows audiences to approach certain subject matter in a different way just because of the nature of an object and then how we animate it, give it life or not give it life. And I'm curious for you as an artist, what that relationship is for you because puppetry I think certainly can access some of the subject matter in a different way than a live breathing person can um so i wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about that for you as an artist yeah definitely um actually the last two puppet projects that i worked on were both written by black authors black playwrights and were both dealing with the subject of racism in the past um so i most recently did rent party which was a drama of works with gretchen van Nanti, which is written by mina henry who's incredible black uh, female playwright and that's really thinking about you know in the 1920s when people, black people had to throw literal parties to raise rent because of you know the gentrification and people increasing rent prices on them and whatnot. But there's this really great scene in the middle of it where you know they're asking, what is discrimination and why are people treated differently? And all of the characters in this are are kids. You know, the the main characters, the bodies are kids, I think between ages 10 and 12 or something like that. And so it's really broken down in a way to make it easy to understand. Like so. Why, why are people treated differently? Why can't we pay our rent every month? What is happening in the world where it feels like we might lose our jobs you know, at any point in time? And so I think work like that is really important because it, one, not only speaks to adults, but also to kids. And it gives an, a, an interesting way of seeing something without feeling like an attack, which I think people can feel really attacked when they see like live humans doing a lot of doing this kind of work. So it's been really fascinating to see the ways in which people have engaged both adults and kids, you know, I don't, and I don't know if the kids really get it, but I think that's okay. And I think a lot of the adults that have come are really just like, wow, like that was a really cool way of seeing it. We've gone into schools and we've done this for like Black History Month. And, you know, the kids are always like really into it. And yes, they're really enthralled by the puppetry, but also the subject matter is really about how do we make things work well together. And then the other piece I did was, was Dreaming, which is down at Duke University with um, Tori Bend. And that piece was examining Windsor McKay's comics and illustrations and all of those very ster- harmful uh, stereotypical depictions. And just thinking about how could we reimagine those as, as, as living characters? So if we're looking at these characters and if they have the ability to decide for themselves whether or not they want to be comics, whether or not they want to be the stereotype. And the interesting thing about this play is it's it actually shows kind of the societal pressures of this might be the only way that you can make money is to like live in this really kind of terrible stereotypical way. And if you could be successful, but how, what impact does that have on your community itself? And so that's another one that, you know, that one's more for adults and it's, you know, we're dealing with college kids that are coming to see that a lot. And I think it's just, again, another really great example of how can we take this subject matter that can be really difficult and really um, kind of expansive and boil it down to a point where we can just look at what it is and how people feel and think about the ways in which we, we can go back and examine some of those really harmful things, but it doesn't have to be a negative examination. Uh, I love, 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 love that. Let's take a quick break. And then we'll come back with more Ashley Wingfield. Sarah Stabley. Joshua Rice. You were from Perry, New York, is that correct? 
That is correct. Our hometown. Our hometown. And what is our hometown known for? Having 800 cows for every one person. More cows than people. That's right. But what else? Um, ooh, the Silver Lake Sea Serpent. That's true. We do have a sea serpent myth. But what else? Um, sometimes the air smells like cookies because we have a cookie factory in town. That's right. And then because of the cows, some days it smells like cow shit. But what else? Um, well, we have a lot of bars. And we have even more churches. Yes, people do love to drink and love Jesus at the same time. But Sarah, what else? Um, oh, we have a Carnegie Library. Oh my God, Sarah. No, it's the Silver Lake Brewing Project. Right, 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 right. SLBP. That's right, that's right. SLBP, which is our very own craft brewery here in Perry, New York, which just so happens to be the closest brewery to... Letchworth State Park, the Grand Canyon of the East. So if you decide to go for a hike and see some of the gorges or any of the amazing waterfalls, then after you see all of these things, hike on over to the Silver Lake Brewing Project where you can try any one of their rotating selection of 11 craft beers specializing in Belgian and classic American craft styles. Sarah, that's like witchcraft, but beer, beer craft. Which is better. It is better. No one's being burned alive at the stake when you go to the Silver Lake Brewing Project. Sarah, what kind of beer craft is really tantalizing your taste buds? Right now, uh, it's definitely the Saisons. They're incredible. I would say the same for any one of their sour beers. They also have incredible IPAs and a classic Western New York cream ale. And you can come and have these beers in the tap room, which is an incredible place to visit. That was once a horse stable. And before that, a silent movie house, Sarah. Think of it. Buster Keaton riding a horse. With beer. That's right. Who wouldn't want to watch that silent movie? But if you feel like maybe you want to stay more socially distant, these beers are also available for curbside pickup. Or you can sit outside on their patio and enjoy the sunshine and sip a tasty craft beer. So, Sarah... Perry, New York is famous and getting more famous by the glass. Because we have a podcast. Well, maybe one day, Sarah, a podcast about puppetry. That's right. We're going to make it big. We're going to put the town on the map with this podcast, Sarah. But the Silver Lake Brewing Project is already helping. Check them out at www.silverlakebrewingproject.com. And we're back with more Ashley Winkfield. Uh, Ashley, there was something, we were just having this conversation about how puppetry, I think, creates maybe a little bit more space for an audience to enter into a conversation with some of this subject matter. Mm -hmm. And Dan Hurling kind of always described it as like a puppet is a cipher for the audience's feelings. And I think part and parcel of that is because so much of our work as puppeteers can be primarily visual with not a whole lot of text. And that leaves so much interpretation for the audience to decide what this image means or this visual or this choreographic move. And that I think certainly is uh, an exciting part of puppetry for me as an artist is that the audience can bring something to it. And I'm curious for you if that also is kind of part of how we can use puppetry to talk about some of this really difficult stuff. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> um, what I do love about puppetry is, is the interpretive nature of it a lot of times. Um, even if there are voice actors or voiceovers, there's still a lot to be 
left to the audience and how they're experiencing the piece and how what feelings they're feeling. And I think there's oftentimes the audience is willing to give to give a little bit more to, to puppets. You know, I find people are very like touched or, or become very emotionally attached to puppets in a way they might not be to, to humans. So when things do happen or when puppets are experiencing things, and especially when it's done well, when it's done really well and you can like see that emotional journey that a puppet's going through, audiences really connect to that. And I think it makes them think a little bit more deeply about it. It's, it's good. Um, it's also, brings the question of, of why, you know, mm -hmm. like why, why is this inanimate object have the ability to speak more than a, more than a human body, which is something I need to unpack on my yeah, own time. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm I like, appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yes, I do think that, that the audience is really pertinent on not only for performers, I think for any performer, um, audience feedback is really important. Um, but I think as with puppetry, because it is often you're emoting through something else. So like your my own emotions or what have you are less important than what's what's happening to the puppet itself. And so that's also helpful for me to be able to have that separation when I am dealing with some of these more difficult topics to really be able to be like, okay, it's it's not me. I don't have to necessarily get into the body of this character quite as much, especially when I'm not voice acting with it. And so it gives the ability to, I think, really dig into some of those things, even as a performer and have a safe space to really do that without feeling like you're putting yourself or your body on the line in the same kind of way. Yeah. Um, I'm curious then for your, I, I don't know how to say this better, like your puppetry origin story, right? Yes. How did you like first get into it? Because I'm curious if you came to theater as a more of an actor first and then got into puppetry or like what that journey was for you. Totally. When, so first of all, one of my favorite things about puppetry is that I feel like there are so few people that are like, I want to be a puppeteer. So, so right. many people that I've met are like, I fell into it through dancing or acting or whatever. And so I think it's one of the coolest things about our community is that it's all of these people with all of these different skill sets, um, which is really cool. So my puppet origin story, I actually <laughs> <laughs> was uh, in college at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and I was doing an internship with Carolina Performing Arts, who brings um, all of these performers to Memorial Hall. And so I was doing their artist development workshop. And this was the 2020 or the 100 year anniversary of Rite of Spring. Mm. Um, and so they had commissioned all of these pieces and they were doing all of, in addition to their regular season, was doing this additional season that was just celebrating the Rite of Spring and different interpretations. So for that piece, they actually commissioned Basil Twist, Rite of Spring. So he came down to Chapel Hill for, to do this week long workshop. And I was in charge of making the stage manager happy. <laughs> so <laughs> tough job. part of my job. Tough job. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, love her, though. Kim Prescott. She's, she's incredible. But I was sent to bring a score to the stage manager, and they were actually looking for volunteers. And so my job for the day was bring this score and go help out with whatever they need done on stage. So this workshop was really a lot of experimentation. So we were experimenting with fans, you're experimenting with smoke rings, you're experimenting with fabrics. And this was really my first introduction to puppetry as performance as something other than Sesame Street or the Muppets. And it kind of blew my mind. I had no idea that 
object movement was a thing. And I was really into performance art at the time, um, still am, but at the time I was actively like writing and doing a lot of more solo works as an actor, as a performer, and as a poet, um, and just trying to bring all of those things together. And then I was introduced to this art form that basically is that. <laughs> After the workshop, Basil was like, well, I like your work, do you wanna be in the show? Um, so I was included in this show uh, while I was still in school. I actually spent my spring break that, that year like workshopping this piece and practicing at Memorial Hall. I think it's still the largest show I've ever done. And so I was in the world premiere of Basil Twist's Rite of Spring as my first ever puppet show, which was incredible. And so I was mentored by Jessica Scott and Kate Brem, who took really good care of me. And, and it was just a really amazing experience to see something that massive and how it comes together. I mean, I think we had like 22 or 24 performers on stage at a time for that, including we had people up in the catwalk. And so it was just this like massive, massive show. So yeah, so that was, that was my first puppet show ever and I loved it. And then- That's an incredible opportunity. Like your first <laughs> gig is a Basil Twist show, which is yes, amazing. Yes, Basil Twist original. It was, it's insane. And then from that, he actually flew me up to do the premiere at the White Lights Festival in New York at Jazz at Lincoln Center, which was my first ever New York City performance was at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And so I'm like, wow, okay. So puppetry is like real. <laughs> it's like a real thing <laughs> that people respect and it's a lot of fun. And it's a mix of all of the things that I love. And for, for our listeners who don't know, um, who is Basil Twist? Oh man, who is Basil Twist? Basil <laughs> Twist <laughs> is this incredible third generation puppeteer who's based in, in New York, Manhattan. He actually just won a MacArthur grant, uh, I guess it's two years ago now. And I think he's probably one of the better better known puppets, puppeteers in the world. And not only does he have this incredible mind for creating this really abstract art, but um, he also designs a lot of works for companies across across the world. So I know he worked on a Beauty and the Beast show. One of the puppets I helped him build was this giant peacock for a show in China that took like four people to operate. Yeah, he's just had this really incredible mind. And he's one of the leaders of um, the Hear Arts Dream Puppetry Program. I know that's not the correct name, but it's something like that. Dream Music <laughs> Puppetry Program. There you go, that one. Yeah. Um, and so he, there in that space, he actually has all of his history from his father, his grandfather, and some of the marionettes that they worked on. And he's done a really great job of, I think, building this puppet community. He brings in a lot of people that start with him as interns and then end up going to do these amazing either puppet works or set design works or costuming works. Um, he just has a really great knack for, for finding new, new talent. It's an incredible person to be able to get to work with. And yeah, he's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner and a Rome Prize winner and all of the accolades. And he's just a nice, he's super he's nice person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious too, if you could maybe describe a little bit of visually what people would see if they saw the Rite of Spring, because I've seen some videos of it before, and it's just incredible. It's almost as if the entire theater is brought to life through fabric and curtains and lights and bodies. So I'm, I'm curious if there's like a visual maybe that you could uh, mm -hmm. describe for us. Oh my gosh. Well, so if you know anything about Rite of Spring, there are multiple movements in, in the piece itself. So Rite of Spring itself, when it was first 
released a hundred something years ago was created such an uproar because it was this ballet that wasn't beautiful. It was like ugly and it had this like stomping and, you know, people, it was like had the, all this like dissonant sound. And Basil basically created this ballet out of materials. So it starts off completely with this black curtain at the front and you kind of see it moving or manipulating it behind. And then that curtain does this giant kabuki drop and then there's 10 more layers of silks and curtains behind it. And you just kind of see, we were all wearing tuxedos. So you see our bodies like running around and doing things, but it's really this masterful ballet of dropping silks, dropping papers and tearing and ripping of paper. And this journey with, with smoke rings, I don't even know how to like fully describe it. There's like so many different <laughs> elements. Um, we had these giant smoke rings that, you know, went out into the audience and, and it all kind of revolves around this one dancer who is on this journey, which is to be interpreted however the audience sees. And we're creating this kind of chaotic world around him. And then it, at the end, it all kind of basically collapses in on him and he becomes a part of that world. So you see him kind of in the beginning discovering how the world exists. And then by the end of it, he's fully immersed and can't escape from it, which is it's, it's a good analogy for the piece itself. It's, you know, as you, the longer you, you're in it, the more you kind of get sucked into the world of the chaos of it. But it's also beautiful. And we, we had this really great theme of, of green that kind of popped up. So everything was white and black and green. Yeah, so it's it starts off very clean. And so you have a lot of like straight lines and you have straight lines that are moving and then just sort of simple bodies. And then all of it sort of accelerates. And so you see a lot of those same geometric themes continuing on as we go. And then by the end of it, we have people flying in from the ceiling and just, just chaos. It just turns into a chaotic mess. <laughs> It's such an incredible piece, and I'm I'm curious for you then. So, if you started off as uh, more of a performer and poet and actor, and then all of a sudden this like visual poetry, you know, comes to you in this opportunity, which is really incredible. How then that kind of sends you into the next phase of your um, work as an artist? Because I think some people could say that Basil's work is abstract uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I wonder if there was something about seeing that, that kind of, I don't know, opened a possibility as what puppetry could be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, like I said, it completely blew my mind because I was like, I don't understand how this is puppetry, but I like it. And I liked, for me, that process of learning everything. I mean, we, we were in rehearsals for like weeks. I think the, the whole entire process itself took over a year, um, even before I was on, you know? And so to be able to see one, the amount of like minute detail that goes into rehearsing a project like that, two, seeing how these shapes can really mean something and emote, and three, just watching this massive team of 20 something people come together to create this one seamless art form really just kind of gave me a new perspective and a new life into what art could be. You know, I, like I, I've said before, I, I was mostly working on solo pieces and, you know, I wrote um, a choreo poem that was for like four people, but I'm like, wow, this can really be something that's massive and it can be whatever you want it to be. And it doesn't really have to make sense to anyone else at the time, you know, like as you're conceptualizing things and, and thinking of new works, it really gave me the freedom to be able to go out and take those risks and and feel like I don't have to present this like perfect and parcel beginning middle end type of show 
it can really be whatever I want it to be. And that, and I can be successful doing that. And it doesn't have to be about humans at all. You know, like it can be really anything. And that, that makes it beautiful in, a, in and of itself. I'm curious then when you have conversations with people and they ask you what you do, how do you, obviously context matters in, in the responses, but um, how you identify as an artist with people? Because I know sometimes uh, for a lot of the artists that I've spoken to who work with puppetry, identifying as a puppeteer doesn't quite always encapsulate all of it, or it leads whoever you're talking to, to one particular reference point. So I'm curious for you how you approach those, uh, those moments. So I, I tend to, my first thing I usually say is I'm an, I'm an actor puppeteer and people are always like, wow, I've never met a puppeteer before. And I'm like, yeah, I get that a lot. Um, <laughs> literally every single person says that, uh, or they're like, oh, I know this one puppeteer that lives in Brooklyn. Do you know them? And I'm like, it's a small community. It's not, it's not quite that small, but then the next thing that immediately happened is they put their hand up and they do like sock puppets. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not that. Um, I think people tend to really infantilize puppetry and they really think of it as an art form that's just for kids. And it's not at all. I mean, I think I've literally, literally only done one kid show in my entire puppetry career, one that's specifically for young audiences. And so I then have to go into and explain kind of like the different types of puppetry. I myself personally love um, the Bunraku style. I love the teamwork of it. I love the choreography of it. And I love the ability to make these puppets look as lifelike as possible. But then, you know, people really understand like marionettes because we've seen that and that's not really what I do. You know, I'm not a marionettist. That's that's a whole different skill set that I don't understand. So hard. They're so hard. <laughs> so hard. And you know, I'm I'm good. I like to be hands on, and so I'm going to stick with my uh, object movement. So yeah. So I think that's that's really the biggest thing is that people tend to kind of ask, one, is it like sock puppetry or is it Sesame Street? And I'm like, it's neither. <laughs> neither of those are what I do. And then just really trying to kind of contextualize and give a visual representation of what I do. And then also, I just, I feel like, again, puppetry doesn't really cover everything. Because like you said, you are a maker, you are an actor, you are a dancer, you are whatever you need to be for that piece. And so I've, you know, I love the skill. I love being able to like, MacGyver puppets because when things break in the middle of a show you're like oh well okay this needs to be fixed in the next three seconds or else their, their leg is gonna fall off you know um, which has happened it's not cute uh, but uh, you know I, I think there's a lot of other technical skills that come along with being a puppeteer it's not just um, move, movement it's it's so much more thinking on this like grander scale than I think some other art forms are you it's really about the big picture of puppetry as opposed to the very detailed and minute thing you might be focusing on. Yeah, it's at once by nature incredibly collaborative in order, especially to do Boon Raku style, yes. um, where three people are working on one figure. But also at the same time, it allows for this total making component where you can be an author of so many parts of what you're doing, designing the puppet or building it or you know, writing whatever text you might need or mm -hmm. directing it and puppeteering at the same time while you're in, yes. the, in the piece. So many layers. <laughs> and then I love that to me, like there's so much autonomy as an artist in puppetry because you really can have the ability to 
have a lot of creative say in almost the entire process should you want that and you're not right. just being told where to go and where how to stand and you know how to move this prop and how to say your lines right, um, right. and i you know once i discovered that coming from a, a primarily an actor background it just opened up this world to me and uh it it was really incredible yeah well why don't we take another quick break uh, and we'll talk more about this wonderful world of puppetry with Ashley Wingfield when we come back. The Puppet Pod is produced in collaboration with Dixon Place, whose virtual programs are free and participating artists are remunerated. That's right, artists getting paid to do what they do even during a pandemic. Donations help us bring together visionary artists and adventurous audiences and support the community during this challenging time. So if you like what you are listening to in the Puppet Pod, please consider making a gift to DixonPlace.org. Dixon Place's puppetry programs, including Puppet Block, Mine by Sheena Stripe, and New Money by Maria Camilla are made possible in part with generous support from the Jim Henson Foundation and donors like you. Thank you. This episode of the Puppet Pod is brought to you by Wear a Face Covering When You Go Out in Public! The Puppet Pod! We are back with more Ashley Winkfield here on the Puppet Pod. Uh, Ashley, I'm curious if you still do um, performances as your human actor self and how uh, puppetry has informed uh, some of that, that work that you do. Yeah, um, I do. Uh, interestingly enough, most of my human acting things come in with with the puppetry. So, you know, I've I did um, Great American Casting Company with with Bread a few years ago, and while I had this acting role, I was also on the puppet team. So we had this giant like puppet that was like as tall as a tree, you know, like twelve foot tall puppets. We were like puppeteering that, and we had this puppet scene later on. So I've one, have had a lot of opportunities to act as a human with puppetry. Um, even in Rent Party, I played uh, five different characters and was puppeteering them, but also was voice acting and being my own human self as well. I think puppetry itself has really helped me get in touch with my body mm. and think about like body language, because that is puppetry for me is such a physical act that when I'm acting, I can, I feel like I, it gives me more insight into like, what is my body saying? in this moment because I have to think about what a puppet is saying with their body. And it's definitely harder to kind of communicate some of that, but it's also just been able to give me insight into, yeah, I mean, just body language and, and emoting and thinking about nonverbal acting and how people react to different things. So, you know, sad puppet elicits XYZ response, does sad human elicit that same response and or how can a sad human do the same thing? And so I've, I've really been thinking about that a lot. And movement is one of my favorite parts of performance in general. So I consider myself a very physical actor and I'm the, generally the person that's like rolling on the floor or falling or whatever in the middle of, <laughs> in the middle of a piece. And so it's, it's great to kind of have that, that meld of the two art forms and to be able to see how puppetry does inform my own physical body movements. I also came from a, an acting background and primarily like theater for youth and children's theater and mm. uh, then Shakespeare, which, you know, both forms 
tend to be pretty exaggerated uh, styles of performance. And what I first discovered with puppetry was that amazing thing where you are no longer the main focus, the object becomes the main focus, you're secondary, sometimes even tertiary as an operator and manipulator and trying to remain neutral and channeling that energy through an object. I, I felt like it helped me understand that I can do less as my human self when it's required of me to, you know, perform emotions or, or whatever it is. And it, I just feel like it made my acting so much better, which I don't do as much of anymore, but I just realized I didn't have to make these large, huge, giant choices. I didn't have to telegraph as much. And I feel like puppetry really helped inform form that for me. I mean, same. I mean, uh, again, when I think about Boon Raku is it's, you know, every single tiny movement can say so much and, and thinking about that in character building as an actor, you know, what, what is my tick as this character or, or what thing becomes natural to this person that I'm playing? It's, it's the exact same thing. You know, when I was working on Rachel Shane's paper piece and we had this like little thing where she, the little girl would like scratch her leg and she would like play with her overalls, you know, which is something that seems really, you know, unimportant, but it just adds that extra quality of humanity to this puppet. And so in the same way, instead of feeling like I have to be this like robot on stage or feeling like I have to be this grandiose whatever, I can just be a human and find ways to bring humanity in with smaller things that are almost imperceptible, but really just add that extra layer of humanity and connection. I'm curious what stories for you when you get to be like a primary creative in a process, what are the stories or the, the things that influence you or excite you to want to tell? Or is, or is it maybe more image-based? Um, it's a little bit of both. So I started artistically as a writer. So, I mean, I've been writing poetry since I was in like second or third grade. And so for me, stories are really important in understanding the arc of of a piece, even if it's non-linear, but just understanding kind of what the point is, is really important for me. And so when I am able to kind of be in a creative role with something, that for me is kind of first and foremost, like what, what story are we telling? What are people going to gain from this? That's kind of where I tend to come in. So it's either going to be, if I'm writing, that's, that's my portion. I tend to write more than make per se. And then also just, just kind of being experimental and whatever that has to be. Um, I did twofold with Only Child Ariel, which was this aerial piece, but we had, um, yeah, Whoa. fun fact. <laughs> I wasn't in the air because I like to be on the ground, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I was the only one who was on the ground the entire time. Um, but we had this like plant meditation that was this overhead projection puppetry. And so we had fake vines and petals and these things. And so it was this whole meditation that really just came out of after rehearsal one day, we all sat down and I was just playing on the projector and seeing kind of what resonated. And it wasn't really an intentional exploration. It was intentional for me, but it wasn't for anything to go into the show. And it ended up being one of the main parts of what we were doing. So I find that a lot of what I do is, is bring in a different perspective on what we can do in a piece, um, particularly because I do tend to be one of the only people with my particular skill set. So if I'm coming in um, as as a performer, I also am a puppeteer, or if I'm coming in as a puppeteer, I'm also an actor or a dancer. And so that's really kind of given me a really great ability to just think about a piece um, just holistically in a different kind of way. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with you there. Is there anything that you're excited to, I don't know if you were working on any of your own work before, obviously we've had to take this pause, or anything that's come up since um, that you uh, are excited to try to develop a little bit more once we can gather in a room and be really close to a whole bunch of people again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the biggest one is that I'm working with Nikki Miller, who is one of the founders of Only Child Ariel. Um, and she's more of a dancer and an aerialist and storyteller in that way. Um, but so she and a couple other of her circus friends and a musician and I, there's five of us, are all sort of kind of in the process of developing this piece about kind of about stereotype, but this one is more, I think, about femininity and masculinity stereotypes and how we present ourselves in the world in that way and so i'm actually really excited to because we had literally had our first meeting right before everything got shut down mm. and so and trying to collaborate via zoom is just not the same as being in the room with people and so i'm really excited to kind of be able to work on that again um full out because all of us are very physical beings and so trying to sit in front of a computer and think of concepts is much more difficult than being able to sort of just play around with each other and find something. And then also, of course, Dreaming, which got postponed. Um, we were supposed to do Dreaming at the La Mama Puppet Festival this year, but the Puppet Festival got postponed to 2021 now. I'm always really excited to continue working on that piece. I think it's really important work and it's really just necessary for people to see, especially right now. Again, people are in a space where they they are able to kind of listen a bit more and, and be introspective. And so I think a piece like Dreaming is gonna be really great because it's gonna come after a lot of this calms down. And so hopefully people will still have that same spirit of, of being introspective and, and be able to kind of take a look not only at our, our current situations, but um, also our, our previous situations and how our past and the art that we have ingested has really informed the way that we view the people that are around us. And how do we grapple with that? How do we look at that and be able to honor it as art itself, but while also being real about the fact that it's kind of shitty, like it's not, you know, it's not good to be able to portray people in that kind of way. I'm excited to uh, consume that project when we, when we <laughs> can so do good. that again. Um, it's so good. Yeah, I, I was excited to see a, a very small portion of it at La Mama back in 2018 when we were doing the little shorts and, and sharing and we were on the same night of performance that night and just got really excited about it. So I'm really uh, hopeful that people can take it in sooner than later, whenever we can do that. Yes. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I also just miss being in the room with people. That's, that's really the biggest thing. Yeah. I just so miss just like being able to collaborate, even like Maggie and I will be at work and we literally will just start like playing with shadows and doing like mini like shadow puppetry shows, you know? Uh, and so that that's really, for me, I, I'm just ready to get back around people and be able to, to love on folks. Yeah, that energy is so on, like you, you can't replicate the energy of, of being in a room with, with people, unfortunately. Yeah. At least I haven't found a way to do it digitally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that energy has so much power in it. Yeah, and there's something too, I think, about these devised processes where people do a really good job of bringing uh, a cohort together that you tend to get really close, really quick. You know, we as theater people tend to do that in a really uh, yes. fun way and you become fast <laughs> friends and then, you know, the the process is over and sometimes those those friendships end, but sometimes they just 
are lifelong, you know, and you, you've worked on a piece for maybe a week, but you feel like you've known someone like in this like much, much deeper way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, it, it, I mean, there's just so much trust that comes in this kind of work. Yeah. I mean, I think specifically in the works that I've done with, with Basil, it tend to be, can, can be very dangerous if, if people aren't fully aware and aren't, everyone isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I have learned that like, I have to be able to trust the people that I'm working with and they have to be able to trust me so that we can do this work in a way that is not only physically safe, but emotionally safe or, or what have you. And so that's, that's one, of the, one of the reasons that we all end up being so close after a while, just because you really have to like rely on this person because if that person isn't doing their job, you can't do yours mm. and vice versa, which again, my favorite thing about Boon Raku is like, you know, if your feet aren't working, you're not walking anywhere, you know, or if, you're, <laughs> if your hips aren't, aren't bobbing with you, like you're going to look like a, like a robot. Like, so it's just, it's such a, a fascinating facet of, of, I think specifically puppetry where you get so close to people, both physically and uh, emotionally. Um, and so you really have to be open to creating those new relationships. Yeah, especially when we're trying to communicate without words so often through the object and we have to all kind of be in that same mental space whether that is like imagining the puppets or the lead puppeteer or or whatever it might be and that is like an incredibly powerful way to really get to know people too yeah it is i mean so uh, again with rachel's piece we actually had our head puppeteer for that was someone who was his his first time puppeteering um so he's a clown uh, and but it was just fascinating to kind of watch his development over the course of the two weeks we were rehearsing as we we're going through and we we're all giving pointers and again being able to like build that trust so quickly with someone especially in a piece like this where you, you know head puppetry is like really difficult you're not only like leading the puppet you're also leading the team and so having to like be thrust into that role because he happened to be the tallest of us it, it was it was awesome um, just to see that and I I think I forgot, I didn't really get kind of a traditional intro to puppetry in that way. And so it was really cool to be able to see that with, with, with someone else and, and learning how to kind of do that manipulation and work as a team and develop that skill set. I, I talked to a lot of people about breath work, you know, and something that's so um, underestimated, I think, uh, when it comes to connection and being able to really breathe with someone and be in the same pacing um, is such an important part of puppetry work and something that I do want to try and bring into other aspects of my performance, whether that's vocally or acting or, or what have you. Yeah, remembering to breathe, man, oh man. Rules for life today. Remember to water yourself <laughs> and to breathe. Yes. Sarah, did you uh, have something? No, I was just really emphasizing the point of remembering to water oneself and to breathe. I often forget to do those things. Um, it's more noticeable when I forget to breathe, but, you know, it happens. Yeah, yeah. We, we see you fall over and we're like, Sarah, breathe. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? <laughs> Um, Ashley, this has been awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this time. Before we let you go, we do a, a segment at the very end of these, which we call the Puppet Hot Pot, which is like a, a fast series of questions with maybe, you know, some rapid fire responses. Uh, are you oh willing to uh, jump in the Puppet Hot Pot? Oh, right. Let's, let's do this. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> so number one, here we go. Uh, what is your favorite form of puppetry right now? My favorite form of puppetry is, is Boonerku. Always. It's just, it's so good to have the teamwork and it's so good to connect with people. Yeah. Great. Uh, next, uh, have you developed any new hobbies during this uh, quarantine pause? Um, 
Well, outside of producing a podcast, um, <laughs> I think I maybe not new hobbies, but I've definitely been developing more of my kind of graphic design work and, and being able to rely on that a little bit more for, for income now that we're in this uh, dead zone uh, in theater world. That's cool. Great. Number three, what is a really memorable place that your work as a performer has taken you uh, in the world? Um, I went to Wuzhen, China, doing animal magnetism with Mabu Mines, which is this beautiful little Disneyland of a city that um, is kept in this like pristine kind of old world style, but it's like so produced and perfect. And it was a really incredible to be able to go there. It's almost like like Venice, there's like waterways and everything else, just absolutely beautiful and stunning. And I got paid to go to China. So that's, you know. Pretty cool. Hell yeah, when puppetry can pay for your travel. Boy, oh boy. I never thought that that would be a thing in my life, but boy. I know. I was like, really? Puppets? Okay, sure, yeah. It's pretty cool. What is a fun fact about Ashley Wingfield that maybe we don't know that you'd like to share? Wheeze. Uh, um, <laughs> Wheeze. Um, I, fun fact, I, all right, well, I, I have alopecia which is a hair loss condition that I've had since I was 10 years old. And it hasn't affected me as much as I think. Oh, well, that's not true. It has because it's become a major part of my identity, but it's also not really affected like my ability to like do work mm -hmm. and things. So I think a lot of times people see, oh, that's that's a bald-headed girl. Cool. What a cool choice and decision. I'm like, no, it, <laughs> it, it wasn't, but that's fine, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's allowed me to really be able to, like I, I tend to play a lot of men, and when I am acting, I think that's played a part in that just a little bit. I like being able to use that as an advantage. That's super cool. Um, as someone with a fellow like skin thing, I have tinea versicolor, uh, which causes this, you know, interesting pigmentation blotches all over my body. It's really interesting. Um, I've never used that to um, do anything in theater yet, but maybe one day, maybe one day. One day, one day. Um, okay, next one. I feel like I'm always trying to figure this question out for myself. Um, and I'm curious for you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh my God, I don't know. I never know. I hate this question. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can take it back. No, no, no. It's, fine. it's, fine. it's just, it's, that's always the question. I'm like, when, one, when am I going to be an adult? Because it's never going to happen, truly. Yeah, I know. Um, I feel that. So true. <laughs> and two, I, I think the, the more I'm thinking about it, I really want to end up on Broadway in some way, shape, or form, whether that's puppeteering or singing or acting or what have you, I want to be able to make it to the highest, quote unquote, highest level of performance that there is. And then I want to like chill out. <laughs> and then I just want to go relax for like the next 25 years. Like, that's really it. Get to the yes. pinnacle and then retire early. I want exactly. that too. I want that too. <laughs> I'm glad that we picked a form that is so lucrative in oh, order I know. to achieve We're that. We're going to be rich, I swear. <laughs> what do you think? will make us rich. Oh, man, oh, man. Um, okay, next one. What can uh, this moment of pause teach us, this, this quarantine time? Mm, the, the biggest thing that, that I've been learning is to be kind to myself and to have patience with myself and that I don't need to be working all of the time. Um, mm. Obviously, in New York, we all know about the rat race. And, you know, I mean, I literally at one point was working in the morning, going to one rehearsal, going to the next rehearsal in the same day. And that's not necessary to be successful. You don't have to run yourself quite as hard. And especially right now, since I, I can't do that, it's like, well, how do I really want to be spending my time? How can I make the best use of my time? And what ways can I really focus on improving 
my relationship with myself. And a huge part of that is being kind to myself and having patience with with myself and reaching whatever goals I may have set and not feeling like I have to be anything more than who I am. Hell yeah. I love that. Love that. Love that. Um, and finally, um, last one. Do you have something that you would wish for the world at this particular <laughs> moment? I know another big one. At this particular moment, I would like for the world to stop killing us. That's, <laughs> that is Hell, really what I would yes. like. Hell uh, yes. Yeah. Just in this week. So today is Juneteenth. I don't think we've said that yet. We should um, definitely celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, today is Juneteenth. So, yeah. Woot woot, Juneteenth. I'm glad the world is finally starting to recognize this holiday. But in the time between now and George Floyd, the police have killed over 120 people. In the 20 days since George Floyd, 120 people have died at the hands of police. And then this week in particular, we've now started to see a resurgence of lynching. So there have been six people of color. One is a Hispanic man, one was a pregnant woman, one was a trans woman. So that, that's also happening right now. And so that's really the biggest thing. You know, honestly, I don't care if people are racist. You can keep your ideals to yourself. You have the, the means to and the right to think whatever you want to think. But the moment that what you think affects my life and takes people's lives away is when it becomes problematic. And so I really just want people to stop. <laughs> stop killing and harming Black folk, marginalized peoples of all, of all sorts. Uh, I share that wish, and uh, I, I hope others do as well. Black Lives Matter, 100, 100, 100. Happy Juneteenth. Um, <laughs> this has been awesome, Ashley. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you for your yes. time today and uh, getting to know you a little bit better. So this has been really, really yeah. great. It has, and thank you for, for having me and, and thinking of me, and, and thanks, Maggie, for, for the recommendation as well. Yeah, and um, if people want to find you uh, on social or somewhere to kind of see your work or uh, get in contact, where, where can they go? Yeah, totally. Um, most of my stuff is on Instagram, so my Instagram is at ashleyk.music, A-S-H-L-E-Y-K.music. And then um, I actually just launched my website this past week, which is ashleywinkfield.com, A-S-H-L-E-Y-W-I-N-K-F-I-E-L-D.com, which has all of my pictures from work that I've done and some videos and things like that. Um, and then you can contact me at, at either platform. I am always on my phone, so <laughs> I will see it very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Ashley, thank you so much and uh, have an awesome Juneteenth. Thank you. Thank you. The Puppet Pod, hosted by Josh Rice and me, Sarah Stabley. Produced and engineered by also me, Sarah Stabley. Theme song and incidental music by Seth Fargolzia and additional music by Hazar and Scott Holmes. Executive produced by Dixon Place and the New York State Puppet Festival, a program of Shake on the Lake and Josh Rice Projects. Support is provided by Dixon Place, the Jim Henson Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Arts Council for Wyoming County Community Arts Grant. This decentralization program is made possible in part with funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature, administered in Wyoming County by the Arts Council for Wyoming County. To make donations, please visit shakeonthelake.org or dixonplace.org. For more information about the artists featured on our podcast, please visit www.thepuppetpod.com. Oh, 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 oh,